Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. We are in Esther chapter 7. Last week in Esther, the king couldn't sleep. It was mysterious why he couldn't sleep, but he couldn't sleep, so he got up to check the books. He started checking the books, and he found out that Mordecai had saved his life. And then he thought, what has been done to help Mordecai who saved my life? And and they said, well, nothing's been done. Well, who's out in the court? Well, at that time, Haman happened to be in the court, but Haman was in the court planning early to get to the king so that he could begin this annihilation of the Jewish people. He wanted to start with Mordecai. And so Haman is there to try and get Mordecai hung on the gallows that he built in his front yard that was 70 feet high. And the king calls him in and he says, hey, what should the king do to the man that the king wants to honor? Haman thought, well, surely it's me, but it wasn't him. It was actually Mordecai that the king wanted to honor. So Haman was shocked and he was just horrified that the person he wanted to kill, the king was now going to honor. And the king made him do all that he requested, which was to parade him out publicly in the king's dress on a horse, shouting out, this is what the Lord does to the one that the king wants to honor. After that... Haman was humbled, had to go back in shame to his house where he was told by his wife, you're going down, buddy. If the king is out to elevate him and you are out to kill him and his people, there's no way you're going to escape what is going to happen next. And so at that point, even while he was talking, he's hurried back to the feast that Esther has set before them. And that brings us to chapter 7. Thought I'd make this a story, right? Because it is. Now, this morning I'm going to talk about Western showdowns. I'm going to talk about prohibition. I'm going to talk about cutting the tags off your shirts and Spock from Star Trek, okay? But first, let's go to verse 1 in chapter 7. Verse 1, it says, So the king and Haman went to, into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, this is a long feast. Okay, these feasts that the king throws, remember the last time we saw one in chapter one, it went for a long time and they were there for weeks partying. And so here's on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, what we have happening here is this is the showdown, right? This is where we have 
Haman on one corner and we have Queen Esther on the other corner. You know, the word showdown came from actually when they would play cards and they would put the cards down to show them to see who would win. And then later it came into this area of gunfighting because basically what happens here is going to show us who is the winner. This whole story has been hinged around these two and what's happening. The annihilation of the Jewish people and is Esther going to step up and actually help them out? And so this is a showdown in a a big way. Finally, the king says, what do you want? Remember the last time she says, well, I want to have a feast. But this time she actually brings out her request. She's going to play her hand. And, And I imagine that the king, when he says, what do you want? I know you wanted to get together, so what is it? I can imagine he's thinking she's going to ask for some lavish gift, or maybe she's going to ask that the king remodel the kitchen, right? Something horrific, you know, like that. Something that just makes you sweat and and break out. And, And instead, that's not what happens. We continue in verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. These are the very words of the edict, right? It's just very descriptive. It's like, we're going to, you know, destroy you, then we're going to kill you, we're going to annihilate you, and then kick you in the shins, right? It's just extensive. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. I imagine at this point there is a pause. The king is like, what are you talking about? Remember, he did not even know that she was Jewish at this time. This wasn't part of the conversation. Haman had not known that she was Jewish. And all of a sudden she spills this out. And remember, in his mind, he's already horrified. What's going to happen with what I did with Mordecai, who is supposed to be annihilated, but now the king honors. When that comes out, what's going to happen? Well, it's starting to come out. It's starting to unravel. And as this starts to take place, I can imagine there's a pause. And then the king finally speaks in verse 5. King Xerxes says to the Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. It all comes down, right? Boom, the guns are drawn and Haman is left speechless. He's terrified. The king asks two questions here. He asks, who and where? And Esther gives not just his name, but a little character uh, of who he is, all right? It is this wicked Haman. It's not just him. It's this wicked Haman. She, She spells it out because she wants the king to know who he really is. The answer, who, reveals the where. In verse 7, the king arose and in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. 
But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And so we see, once again, there is anger. Once again, we see the anger is connected to the wine that is flowing. Remember that happened in chapter 1 with Queen Vashti when she wouldn't come out when the king wanted to parade her and they'd been parting for a long time. It said that the wine had been flowing, that it was an open bar. Anyone could get drinks all the time, and they were. And then there was this anger that connects this thing. Wine is usually associated with joy in Scripture. But... Here we see that there is an excess. And with this excess, it's not a coincidence that the storyteller is mentioning it again because the wine is flowing, the anger starts, and there's out of control that starts to take place. And it's something that we have to recognize and acknowledge. You know, in 1920 to 1933, it was the prohibition. It was called the Noble Experiment. Right. And, and the whole intention of prohibition was to help reduce crime. Right. From the people who were drinking and fighting. It was help stop corruption. It was to solve social problems that were caused by drunkenness. It was to try and reduce the tax burden created by people being imprisoned because they were in a drunken state. And it was supposed to improve the health and hygiene in America. It was all noble. If we get rid of this drunkenness, this will be better for everyone. So let's stop alcohol. What ended up happening was that alcohol was still being made just illegally. It became dangerous. So many people were getting sick because the alcohol wasn't being prepared correctly. However, it's supposed to be prepared. They were adding something and it was becoming poisonous. It increased crime and now crime became organized where before it was disorganized crime. Now it actually became organized crime. The court and prison system were stretched to the breaking point and the corruption in public officials became rampant. Prohibition ended up removing a significant source of tax revenue and greatly increased government spending. So it failed miserably. What it tried to do, it didn't do. And what we see is that the prohibition could not do something that had to be chosen. And so you had then organizations develop years later, like AA, where we're actually trying to help the problem of the excess of drinking, but it has to be something that people choose. And what I want to say at this point, and at least make mention of, is that for people who have a problem with drinking and make a choice to stop drinking, I want to bless you, okay? God bless you for making that choice and wanting to do that. I commend it, and it is a noble thing, you making that choice, because no one else can make that choice for us. There was a time when I was just very adamant against alcohol 
completely. There would be no alcohol in our house. We would not have alcohol a part of any wedding celebrations, any birthday parties. There was just this mindset of, nope, it's against it. Even things that we would go to if there was a lot of alcohol, we were just, nope. It was our prohibition. And it failed miserably, right? It it did not work in the family with the people that we knew, and it really kind of put more of a wedge than a help there. And so I recognize that there is now a place where alcohol can be, but there is also the danger of excess, and you have to acknowledge it. And and it's being acknowledged here in the story. And, And so just bringing that aware that it's still something that we deal with in our society today. It is still something that can become problematic. Now, at this time, when they are sitting and eating, feasting, they're not sitting at a table like we are. They're actually reclining. They have kind of like couch pillows, which to me sounds like a great idea. To be able to lay down and eat, it would just be like, this is great, you know? And so they're reclining. So now when the king gets up and leaves, Haman moves in towards Esther begging for his life and he's probably at her feet, kind of groveling for his life like, please, I know the king was upset. He was irate. He's going to kill me. It was unusual that the king stood up. He hasn't stood up in any of the other accounts we've had. He's always been sitting, but now he stands up and he leaves. And as he exits, Haman moves in towards Esther. But then verse eight, and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left his mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. They don't even want to see who now the king has cast out. Remember, no one was allowed to be sad in front of the king. Remember Mordecai was wearing sackcloth and ashes because he was mourning the fact that his people were sentenced to die, but he couldn't get close to the palace because the king didn't want anyone who was grieving in his sight. They didn't want this person now who was an enemy to the king to even be seen. And so immediately they covered his face. It's reminiscent of what happened in the past chapter where he was covering his face because of shame because he had to take Mordecai and honor him. I always hated the tags on the back of my shirt. They bug me. It didn't matter how small they were. They were made out of bob wire to me, right? They were just like, ah, it's there. And so I would always cut them off. But I was never good at cutting them off. And I'd always want to cut off as much as I could. And I would think I was leaving enough, but it would end up, I actually would cut part of the shirt. And then I would start having this hole in the back of my shirt that would start unraveling. I see a lot of you are shaking my, your heads, right? They should not. And now a lot of shirts don't actually put tags. They just put a little imprint and they've taken our cue of destroying shirts, right? It just starts unraveling. I didn't mean for it to cut that deep. I just cut a little too far and now it's ruined. And Haman started meddling and it went too far. 
and now his life is ruined. Remember last week we talked about how there's this kind of reaping what you're sowing event that takes place. The providence of God shows up where the king wakes up for no reason or can't sleep for any reason. It just happens to look at the books where Mordecai is and we see that what Haman had been doing all along, trying to kill and annihilate the Jewish people, ends up being his destiny. What Mordecai is trying to do is save and help and rescue the Jewish people, ends up becoming his destiny. And this is just part of the unraveling. This, this is now payday. And Haman is reaping what he has been sowing this whole time. And, and there's two flashbacks that we see here. Right As the words left his, the mouth of the king, they covered his head. Last chapter, as they were talking, the king's guards came and pulled him out. So there's this hurried event that's going on. Things are snowballing fast. It's happening quick, and there's no way of stopping. All, the, the domino has been pushed, and they're all falling down, and there's no way of going back and taking what has happened back. It's too late. wheels are turning really fast and then the covering of his face again first it was in shame and now it's condemned and and it's a sobering thought and, and it happens to us so many times where the things that we do start knocking over the pins and you can't stop them we reap what we sow we can be forgiven but we still have consequences. How many things have been said that can't be taken back that destroy relationships? How many things have been done? Someone gets drunk, gets behind the wheel of a car, hits and injures somebody. You can't take it back. There's so many circumstances where what we do ends up moving forward and there's no way of stopping it. And it's something that we need to recognize now before we make that move, before we make that choice, before we do whatever it is that we're doing that causes the events that we are no longer in control over. The great thing is, just as it works in a negative, it also works in a positive You see, the good things that we do, the helping of other people, it sets in motion things that you have maybe no idea how they're going to come back. You help someone out, someone else finds out about it and it ends up leading to a a good job career. And it was just because you showed kindness to someone and and you made a difference that they noticed you and they wanted to then help you out, right? It can happen in so many ways, but a lot of times we just see the negative and we don't understand that there is always momentum in our actions, that it always pushes us forward. And we see that happening in this story, both with Haman and with Mordecai. In verse 9, story continues, then... Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. 
Don't you love people who just happen to be there at the time? You know, it's like I could see Haman saying, like, what's going to happen? And this guy, hey, you know what? I saw. And, you know, Haman's like, oh, man, what's going on here? Thanks, buddy. And, And again, we see that this person has favor, it seems, with Esther or Mordecai, or maybe it's with the Jewish people. Maybe that they were enslaved and they see an enslaved people and they're having this compassion on them. Right? They're, they're seeing and noticing that. We see that in the story earlier with Esther. Remember the person who was there to help her, who was kind of like the Hunger Games, the guy who helped Katniss you know, get all dressed up. It was Lenny Kravitz. You know, I don't remember his name in the movie. I just remember it was Lenny Kravitz. It's like someone is there to help them move forward. Those kindness things that were being done show up in other ways. The gallows that were intended for Mordecai, who saved the king, he's being hung on it. The irony. The irony is that when Haman wanted to be lifted up, he was actually brought low. And when he was brought low, he was actually lifted up on the gallows. There's just this contrast that's taking place in all these things. The king's anger finally subsides, even as it did in chapter 2. Anger has fueled the plot, both when it flared up and when it subsides. And anger has been kind of the energy running through this story. And and as we've been talking about the providence, how it, it always looks good in the rearview mirror when we see it's already happened. Or it always looks good in the distant future when we're saying, oh, someday God will provide and do these things. But at the moment, providence always seems to be missing. It's not here right now when I need it until it does happen and then it happens in a strong way. And that's how we are to determine how we live our lives. That's how we are to live so that the providence of God is something that is at work within our lives. You see, Esther risked her life to go before the king. She took a big chance that could have cost her her life to rescue the people. And kind of reading between the lines, doing this, she surrendered her life to the will of God, even though God is not mentioned. By by doing the things that are in line with what God would do, we find her now in the movement that God is already moving in. Doing this surrendering, she's actually surrendering herself to the will of God, and God's will is now being accomplished through her actions. And and I imagine that when I am totally dependent on on God, and that means trusting that he is at work, when I I believe that he is at work and he wants me to work in a certain way, which is in line with his character, that God's will and my will start to become intertwined, where, where they start to not be sure where mine leaves off and where God's picks up because they're kind of working together. That if I am living the kind of life that I should be living, that my will and God's will 
should be undistinguishable because they are together. In fact, that's what Jesus said, right? He is our model. He is giving us the example of how we as people are supposed to live. In John 5, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The words I speak, they're not my words. They're his words. It's as if the will of God is showing up in the actions that he's doing because they are. And you see, what we want to do is get to a place where the will of God and our will are connected, where what we do is what God is doing. And we find ourselves in the flow of the work of God and we're unaware of it because we're in the middle of it. Oh, it seems like it's my will, but really it's also God's will. How does that happen? I don't know. He's big enough to make those things happen. But I sure do know when my will isn't like his, right? I am sure aware of when I am doing something that is in contrast. God has a way of bringing those things up and they end up coming back at you. When you act inappropriately, when you do something you shouldn't do, when you don't represent his character well, it shows up. And now it can be really clearly seen, oh, this is the will of God and this is my will. God isn't out to bring genocide, but Haman was. And you see the divide that takes place. And as it starts to come down, we become aware, wow, I've really strayed from where I should have been. So I want to learn how to surrender. I want to learn how to more fully follow. I want to learn how to be in that flow so that what he wants is actually what I want. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? On earth as it is in heaven. I want these things to take place. I think there's insight to be found Two, in the king's unexpected departure here. The king stands up and he leaves. He goes out into the garden. Gardens are an important part of the scripture, right? I mean, it all starts there. There's the garden and we know the choice that Adam and Eve made. And we know the the repercussions of that choice, the consequences. Again, the reaping, the sowing event that takes place. Jesus also, when he is sorrowful and his soul is is being crushed, he goes to a garden to pray. And, And really what we see happening in the garden at Gethsemane is to link us back to the original garden where a choice was made and another choice is made. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. We know the cross is the culmination of the work that Jesus did for our benefit but it really took place there at the garden when he chose to go. And so there is this garden moment that is taking place here where we have to kind of recognize that. Gardening is terrible. (laughs) But my wife loves it, and some of you probably love it as well. And when you get out, she goes, oh, I love gardening. It's so relaxing. I'm like, relaxing 
It's work. You're digging in the dirt. You're shoveling things. That's work. But for some people, just getting out and the change of scenery, the, the fresh air becomes a place where you can actually relax. Becomes a place where you can kind of detach from all the other things that are happening and move forward in a way that's better, kind of bring oxygen to yourself. You know, when I'm doing dog training, I always tell the people, your dog's going to start yawning a lot. And they're always like, what? I go, we're going to really put their brains to test and they're going to need to supply a lot of oxygen. And so you're going to start seeing the dog yawn a lot. And sure enough, we'll be there and I'll say, okay, there we go. And the dog's like, like, man, this is a lot of work. And they're just having to supply oxygen to their brain, right? And so going outside and changing things up helps the brain to start thinking different. Even walking, they found, helps you to become more creative. Just going out for a walk, it helps you to be able to think differently. They did some tests where they tried to get how many uses can you find with a key, right? And they have to be unique and they have to be meaningful. They can't be just, you know, put it on the head of a giraffe. Like, you know, that doesn't mean it has to be useful things. And they found out that people who just sat down and thought of things, they could think of about maybe 20 things to do with a key, which I thought was pretty good because I could only like come up with two, you know, key a car and open a door. Yeah, I don't know. You know where I come from. Um, But they found that those people who just sat down and thinking of it could come up with about 20. But then they put people just on a treadmill in a room with no windows walking and they came up with like 40. And it happened with a number of groups of people where the people who were just walking came up with twice as many ideas of what to do with the key than those who were just sitting. And so the king gets up, he goes for a walk, he goes out in the garden, he changes his mental thinking and he starts trying to figure out what is going on here what happened and and i wonder what was going on in his mind how did i allow this man to convince me to sign a decree that was going to annihilate even my own queen and all these people who are part of my kingdom how did it get to this place probably had a lot to do with the wine king. It probably had a lot to do with all that parting. It had a lot to do with you relinquishing these control to people you couldn't, couldn't trust. But sometimes we need to get up and take a walk and reevaluate where we're at. Sometimes we need to kind of take stock in our lives and see where are we and where are we going. And that's what the king is doing here. As he returns back, right, he he sees Haman in this condition where he looks like he's falling all over the queen. And remember, no one is supposed to touch the queen. She didn't even get to go outside. Her own cousin, Mordecai, couldn't have interaction with her. It had to be done verbally. The only people who had access to her were the eunuchs that the king would trust. And so here is Haman falling at her feet and he just assumes, okay, yeah, you've crossed another line, buddy. And then his history is history. This idea of a garden is an important one thing. I, I think we need to recognize that we have to return 
to that place. We have to make the decision that allows God to be where he needs to be, which is still good, where we are free from the pain, the the sorrows and evil that God is near in spite of our circumstances. The garden represents a place where God is present, where where God's will is being accomplished. And, And you see, the garden wasn't lost. The garden wasn't destroyed. The garden wasn't hidden. The garden was transplanted. What's known as the secret garden of the soul. That this garden that we need to take care of and we need to cultivate and keep is now something that is within us and not just something we need to go to. Right? There, there used to be a temple that they would go to and worship God, but Jesus says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and our lives are supposed to be a sacrifice of worship to God. And this garden where we can go to is now something that we need to cultivate within our own lives. It's something that we need to recognize is so close, but it can seem so far. And the decisions that we're making, all of our decisions that we make, there, there is this kind of feelings that we get, this, this transforming combination of, of things that are effective, effects that happen to us, and then reflective how we think about those things. You know, one of the favorite characters in Star Trek is Spock, Right? Because Spock is logical, right? And it seems like, yes, Spock is always making the logical things. And that's how we think we are supposed to be. You know, I, I think I'm making a decision and it's based on logic. But most of our decisions are first made in the area of emotion. We feel something and it affects us. And it's not just psychologically. Emotions are biological. If you get scared... It affects you. You'll get your hands will start sweating, adrenaline will spike, the cortisone levels. You feel it biologically, even though it's happening emotionally. But then what has to happen is we have to have a reflective moment on the emotion that we're feeling. I'm feeling angry. I can feel the blood pressure. I can get flush in the face. My ears are turning red. I'm showing all the physical signs that I am emotionally angry. Now I have to think, why am I angry and what am I going to do about it? And it's not just an analytical process where we say, okay, this is what I do and this is what I'm going to do. It's actually a reflective process. It's a curious, it's, it's an asking a question. It's an investigation of what is happening. What am I supposed to do? Which is what the king was doing here. What has just happened? What am I supposed to do? And these are the things that happen in our own life. It refers to the thoughts we have regarding our emotions. And sometimes we have to wait for the emotions to subside. And that's when the garden, the walk is useful, where I give myself a break, where I become reflective. 
where I stop and I pause and I take a breath and I, I pray and I meditate and I don't just react. I don't just press send on that email. I give it a little bit of time and think it over before I actually send it out. Why? Because my emotions are very heated at the moment. I need to reflect on why am I so upset? Why do I feel threatened? Why am I hurt? What's going on within me that I need to change? See, and as Christians, we need to become more reflective, not just more logical, not just more analytical, but more curious. What is this experience? What is this moment? Where is God in what I am going through at this time? What's it causing in me? How is it awakening things in me? How is God using it? I, I think of our kids and when we're dealing with children or even other people, when my, my kids do something that's wrong and, and I just want to punish, I just want to say, hey, you're grounded. And I don't ask, why would you do that? What, what were you feeling when you put that into place? What's going on? Instead of asking, why is this taking place? I'm just trying to shut it down. And what would happen if we wanted to find out some of the root of what's taking place so that we could actually deal with things more effectively? See, that's what God is wanting to do. He's wanting to explore within us what is happening and why we are feeling and doing the things that we're doing. Why do you keep making the same mistake over and over? What is lacking in you that causes you to go to this to get comfort instead of coming to me? What is it that you keep falling in the same pit over and over again. Why do I keep going back to that guy, to that girl, to that bar, to that drug, to that addiction? What's happening in me? Is it that I'm alone? I feel empty. I feel like God is not going to have something for me unless I take this? Why do I feel the need to wander? Discarding that I will reap what I sow. It's just a matter of time. Why don't I sense the will of God? Where am I and where is he in this moment? See, I think we can learn from what the king did here and how we are to live our lives as well. David said in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, there is a garden that we can go to where there's always water. And where you'll always find God's love every time. There is a place that we can go to. There is a hidden garden of the soul 
where God does dwell that we can go to, we can reflect and find where we need to be before we make a decision that we will later regret. And sometimes all we need to do is stop acting. Go outside. Go to find your garden. Go for a walk. Allow God to be a part of your thoughts. And allow him to start to work in that area of his will as you reflect on the emotions that you're feeling at that time. Because you will not stop the emotions. You are going to feel angry. You are going to feel hurt. You are going to feel lonely. You are going to feel all of these things. What do they mean? What am I supposed to do with this? How do I move forward from here? And taking that walk and reflecting and allow God to being a part of that might give you 40 more answers than you thought of before, 40 more things to think about than you had previously thought about. It might open something that becomes crystal clear to you of this is what I need to do. But you'll never know it if you don't stop, if you don't go for that walk, if you don't reflect and allow God to be a part of this journey. Let's pray. Lord, one of the reasons this book is so powerful is because of how invisible you are in it but how present you are all the same. How you show up in ways that we need to be aware of, that we need to be mindful of. And it really does begin, Lord, with our posture, with how we are living. And if we are walking in line with what your will is. God, many times we find our our lives unraveling when we start to to wander from you, when we start to stray, and, and we have to pick up the pieces. And so, Lord, I pray that we would pause before the unraveling stops, that we would stop and reflect, and we would allow you to have a, a voice, even though we might not understand it's yours, even though it might not be something we can really understand fully it won't be an audible voice it'll be your will mixing with ours it'll be your character changing ours it'll be your life showing up in ours Lord that we might be your temple the place where you dwell the place where you work where your will is seen by the things that we do And I pray for all of us here this morning, Lord, and and the things that we are in the middle of, Lord, the, the struggles that we are going through, some of them are physical, Lord. Some of them are very emotional. There are 
a lot of questions, a lot of hurts, a lot of things going on, Lord, and they're not going to be fixed by us figuring out something else. They're going to be fixed by you working within. And so I pray, Lord, that the garden of our soul would be of value to us, that we would take the time and allow work to be done there, that we would allow you access to these places, God. And I pray you bring healing, Father. I pray you bring insight. I pray that you would bring strength. And I pray that we would pause and allow you the room to work in our lives, God. We do pray and ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May you reflect on all the things that affect your life. May you recognize the importance of God's will directing you and your future. And recognize that he is near. Always. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. See you Wednesday or next week. God bless. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.